Thank you very much for those extremely kind introductions. So my name is Alexander Davis and I'm currently finishing up a postdoctoral research fellowship with La Trobe University and the Australia India Institute. It's really it's really wonderful to, to be here to speak with you today. This is my second time in Sikkim, but it's my first time giving an academic talk in the in the Himalaya. I've spoken several times in India previously. Um, but I've only been working on the Himalayan region for two years uh, since I realized that I was working on the same region as several other research scholars at La Trobe, including, including Ruth and Gerald, but also uh, a couple of others as well. And we realized that we were all working on the same region, but from, but from different disciplinary perspectives. So I come from international relations. Ruth is an environmental historian. Uh, Gerald's an anthropologist. Our other colleague, Lauren Gorn, is a, is a linguist. And we realise that we're all working on the same region, but from different disciplinary perspectives. So it's particularly good to be with you here today because I think your lives are affected every day, not necessarily by what you'd call international politics or international affairs, but by something more broad that we might call the international. And that's because you all live near a border a border that is militarised, a border that, that has a lot of tensions over it. You live near disputed borders. And we tend to think of international relations and international politics as something that is solely about the state, something that is about the state in India, the state in China, all the international states and international organisations making decisions, bumping up against one another, sometimes cooperating and sometimes fighting. But I think that's actually an exceedingly narrow definition and I think that's why Sikkim and the Himalaya is such an interesting place to think about international politics and international affairs. So I'll come back to that theme later, but first of all I'm going to introduce the policy brief, um, which you can take a copy of sitting up the front later, and talk about, and then I'll talk about my own contribution to it and my own, my own research interests. So it does have two more authors who couldn't actually be here today. Those are Anwesha Dutta, who is a postdoctoral researcher living in Norway, and she's a political ecologist. And the other is Sonika Gupta. She's an associate professor at IIT Madras, who's uh, head of their China Studies Centre. So she's, they're both interested in politics in different forms. So this is a very interdisciplinary research project uh, that we tried to have some policy implications come out of. Uh, so instead of just analysing why these problems came up and why they existed, why they occurred, but also what can we do to fix them? How do we deal with them? So I'll come back to that towards the end. So the, the Himalaya houses the world's third largest ice store which stabilizes global climactic cycles and feeds into most of Asia's large rivers. The mountains also contain three biodiversity hotspots, a long list of endangered species that are living up and down the, the region's headwaters, up and downstream in South, Southeast and East Asia. But it's also a scene of political contestation. It's got numerous border conflicts between states. It also has numerous ethnic conflicts. And this is leading to increasing militarization and competitive development in the region. And this is all, of course, causing environmental and cultural issues, um, but it's also happening amidst a, a broader backdrop of global warming, which most industrialized Western societies 
who I want to be clear about this are mostly responsible for, uh, refusing to adequately deal with. So the consequences of this environmental destruction in the Himalaya, as the brief outlines, will not only be felt by the region's local peoples, they'll be first felt likely by yourselves, uh, but will eventually be experienced downstream and then globally. So despite the region's clear environmental, political and cultural importance, they're not talked about sufficiently or understood sufficiently from the kind of interdisciplinary perspectives that we try to outline in this, in this policy brief. So these are the challenges that we try to deal with here. We first show historically how these issues emerged across geological and geopolitical timescales, and then we go through some ways in which we think they can be addressed, some ways in which we think they might be fixed. So, to my own contribution to this, I, my previous work looks at colonial legacies and international affairs in South Asia by combining historical research with uh, post-colonial theory and post-colonial analyses of international relations. And this draws on my training as both a historian and an IR theorist. My previous work looked at India's relationship with the English-speaking world. When I got to La Trobe and I realised I had very similar interests to my colleagues here on the stage, uh, I was planning on working at the colonial legacies in India's foreign relations in South Asia. And that's what led me to look at the, to look at the Himalaya. So when I was starting to read about the Himalaya and looking for the Himalaya in IR, I found a region that was very, very different to, that was talked about differently to the region that my colleagues were talking about. So this slide, I think, demonstrates how international relations sees the Himalaya. So as you can see here, we have contested borders, we have capital cities, we have Srinagar marked there, but there are several things here that I think are deeply wrong with this picture. Can anyone, can anyone guess what, uh, what this map is missing? It's missing people. Yes, thank you, Gerald. <laughs> It's missing the mountains, which is also an excellent answer. Thank you, Ruth. So it's flat. You have no sense of the diverse local peoples that inhabit the region, and you have no sense of the scale of the mountains, the way in which they shoot upwards from the plains. And Ruth will possibly go into the forming of the Himalaya later. But our international relations, the key point here is that international relations as a scholarly discipline tends to have this sort of cartoonishly flat sense of the Himalaya. It looks at it at the perspective of foreign policy elites in cities like Delhi, uh, Beijing and Islamabad, um, but it doesn't venture into the mountains themselves to see the, the lived experience of international politics and the consequences of international politics in, uh, in these disputed regions. So we have this focus on strategic elites, and then we talk about Nepal, Bhutan as buffer states, but we don't necessarily engage with those places and how they're, how they're transformed by international political contestations themselves. There's also a great deal of research on the effect of something like nuclear weapons and military strategy. Um, so China developed nuclear weapons in 1964, India responded in 1998, Pakistan responded just a few weeks after that. So there's a lot of studies of what's the military strategy between these different countries, between these states. But this is a very much a states and security centered approach to thinking about international politics in the Himalaya. 
the local peoples are not visible, the environment isn't visible, and the culture is not visible. And so we end up with this perspective which we think we're studying the international relations of the Himalaya, but we don't feel like we actually have to go there. And that's one of the main things that I want to address uh, today and in my research on the region. So that's what's wrong with this picture. We're only asking one question in international relations about, about the Himalaya. Will India, China and Pakistan go to war? And if they will, how catastrophic will it be? Who's crossed what line of control where? How far will they go? Will this political contest lead to a catastrophic nuclear, a nuclear attack? And what I think this misses um, is not just, is all of these cultural and environmental issues that are coming from militarization, that are coming from increasing centralization of governance in India, uh, but particularly in China as well. So we have this one question, will they fight or will they cooperate? And for most, actually, the answer is just no, they won't fight. They won't destroy the world. They won't destroy one another entirely. And then we don't ask any further questions. But there are really significant costs to the persistent low-level militarization of the Himalayan ice pack along contested borders that are extremely important and that are not being su sufficiently thought through. So this is what I think IR misses in the Himalaya. This is a picture that I took from Ladakh just a couple of weeks ago and you may not be able to see fully but it's actually a war memorial just south of the city of Leh built by the Indian Army uh, in the last 10 or 20 years. And the projection's not fantastic, but what it actually is, is out the front is a statue of the Buddha flanked by howitzers on either side. Uh, <laughs> so this is, these, two, these histories of uh, religion and Buddhism and connections across the Himalaya are currently coexisting with this militarization and they're being combined in really fascinating and interesting ways. And this is also linked in with the mountains that you see in the background. Um, so what the brief argues is that culture, ecologies and geopolitics are really deeply intertwined in the region and if we want to solve the challenges that the region is facing today, we need to think of them as, um, as bouncing off one another, as feedback loops, as things that need to be, uh, that are feeding into one another that need to be undone. So we have this militarization, which is leading to cultural destruction and linguistic destruction and that feeds more into environmental destruction and also environmental destruction feeds more into militarization. So we miss the region's role in the global climate when we only look at the state and security. Uh, Ruth will talk more about this topic shortly. Water is often something talked about as that needs to be fought for. I hear a lot of people saying that the world's next wars will be fought over water. And that may well prove to be the case, but that leads to my next point up here, that the effects of securitization and militarization on the region. We can't afford to militarize the Himalayan environment. And when you say to the state that wars might in future be fought over water, the response that the state tends to have is that this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you start to say that water is a security challenge for us, then the state tends to respond to security challenges with militarization. Uh, we know from the experience of Australia when migrants became positioned as a security threat that um, once an issue becomes a security issue, it actually gets governed a lot worse. And so we can't afford to think of water and the environment as just something that is a, a referent object of security. 
So, and but this leads to a military response, and this is essentially what's happening at the moment. There are hundreds of thousands of troops up in the Himalaya from various state armies, and this is part of the reason that we have accelerated the melting of the Himalayan ice cap. It's part of the reason that states are building dams to provide energy and electricity. It's also used to provide electricity to uh, places like Gangtok, but some of the electricity is also uh, going to the military. So there's a feedback loop here between environment and militarization. And tourism is also part of this too. Uh, this is slightly unusual use of academic evidence, <laughs> uh, but if you go to Google Maps or TripAdvisor for this site, you'll see that it has thousands and thousands of five-star reviews. So this is leading to a boom in tourism numbers, infrastructure development, and the army is also entwined with part elements of that tourism. But there are also bright spots, uh, positive moments and potential solutions that we want to talk about today and that we talk about in the brief. Some of the borders in the region are not militarised and local peoples are allowed to cross unaffected and communicate with one another and manage environments together. There are transboundary national parks in the Himalaya that cross over places like the India-Bhutan border. There's also Isimod, uh, which circulates scientific knowledge around the region between various state members. So there are really important bits of evidence that we outline in the brief uh, that show that more cooperation is not only necessary, but there are the building blocks there for it, for different state actors to, uh, to cooperate in the region rather than to fight. But to put, so we, the policy brief tries to reconceptualize the international politics of the Himalayan region um, from our various disciplinary perspective, and then think through the policy solutions that are required. And to put those simply, we borrow from some of those positive examples that we highlight uh, as alongside Arctic and Antarctic governance, which are forms of governance that listen to local knowledge, that listen to local people, that are sensitive to environmental concerns, but that also are sensitive to scientific knowledge. So the incorporation of indigenous, local and scientific knowledge into governance structures and the sort of decentralization of governance across the, uh, the Himalaya. So I will leave it there and pass over to my colleague, Ruth Gamble, who will talk more about uh, environmental history in the Himalaya. Hi, everyone. Um, so uh, I got a car yesterday uh, up the mountains, uh, up to the mountains from Bagdogra Airport. Have any of you done that before? Yes, no one else? None of you all have been up on that road ever? <laughs> I think it's a road everyone probably knows. Um, I'm hoping everyone, you, you've done a trip down to Silguri and back up. Put your hands up if you've done that trip. There you go. That's it. That's what I'm saying. Everybody knows that road. Everybody knows that trip. Yeah, I was, I was, I was guessing that you'd all done it. Um, and it made me think about uh, the first time I took a trip into the mountains when I was still a teenager, which is only two years ago. No, um, which is a bit longer ago than that <laughs> um, in the 1990s. And I got a car up from um, the, uh, uh, the border with Nepal uh, up to Kathmandu. And I first saw the mountains and I saw the, the rivers and the forests and the changing ecosystems as we went up. And I thought, what is this place? I've never seen anything. I didn't imagine. The scale was just so massive. And, and the uh, intensity of the change and the idea that you went from these 
mountains that were above the clouds. I mean, seriously, that's just um, all the way down to salty bottoms where it came out into mangrove, where the rivers entered out into mangrove swamps and they acted as oxygen for the ocean. It was just this amazing scape, right? Uh, and I was completely over blown away by it. And every time I've come back up into the mountains since then, it's felt like I've gone back to visit old friends, right? Not just the people that live in the mountains, but the bits of the mountains, the rivers, the, the peaks, uh, the uh, different little uh, areas of jungle that I've come to know. And it feels like I've been coming back. It's almost like you're doing a checkup on them. You go and see your friends and go, how is everything? How many kids have you had? You know, how's granddad? And then you'll say, oh, and how's the forest? And how's the river? You know, you're kind of coming back to check up on everyone, see how everything's going. And when, so I think it was on the basis of this that when I first decided on doing a project post my PhD, I decided I wanted to write a biography of a river, right? And people said, you don't write a biography of a river. A river is like not a person. How do you do that? But I, but I think I was, that was why I'd been thinking of it as these being these biological entities that have life, that have connections, that have a, 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 have a sense of how they all fit together. And, I, and it struck me that like a, a river would, of course a river would have a biography. So uh, in looking at how these rivers are going, how, um, how well they're doing and how much health these friends that I've been visiting now for over <coughs> 20 years, um, have, uh, it strikes me that a lot of them are not doing so good, unfortunately. And that's, I think, one of the things um, that we were trying to get up. Two things I was trying to get across in my section of this brief, and it's you know, caused by the stuff that Alex was talking about and it reflects in the stuff that Gerald's going to talk about. But it is this central role of how healthy are these spaces, how healthy are these spaces that people are arguing over and how healthy are these spaces in which people live. All right. Um, so the Teesta River looks a bit like it needs a holiday. Um, <laughs> from my trip up the river yesterday. It's like, okay, it's doing a lot of work at the moment. We've got the electricity and we've got the roads. And so my, so my, um, uh, my, uh, my advice like to my friend would be, Tista, have a break. You need a break from all this work. Um, other places, like, they look like they've gone beyond, beyond that and they're on life support. Um, and uh, uh, some of the forests are really hanging in for, for, um, for dear life. The only places at the moment that seem like they're doing okay at the tops of the mountains. Yeah, and, and maybe that's because I haven't climbed them. <laughs> and, and also because all of our rubbish is only you know, slowly making its way up there. Um, but I really, I really wanted to encourage this sense of interacting with these spaces as friends, as people that you can, uh, as spaces that you can, can care for, right? And when you care for a space, it doesn't matter that it's not well, you still care. You don't go to your friend and say, oh, you look like you got a cold. Sorry, man, I'm out of here. Yeah, it's, it's this sense of being engaged with, that, with those spaces, caring for those spaces and developing a sense of um, like what the uh, philosopher Joanna Macy calls falling in love with the world, falling in love with the earth. So um, from that perspective, um, I wanted to tell you a, a little bit about the one river that I ended up writing a biography about, I mean, the process of writing a biography about, and tell you how it's doing. Um, I talked about this river a little bit last time, but I haven't started my next project, so it has to be the same river. Um, and, but I thought I'd talk about it, because the other thing that I see is, I'm in this very privileged position in some ways for now, 
that I can come to this side of the mountains and then go to the other side of the mountains. Sometimes when I go to the other side of the mountains, I meet lectures, <laughs> like Murphy here. Uh, but that, that ability to go between the two sides uh, it means that you see the different, how things are happening in different places in the Himalaya. Right, so what's happening in Ladakh, what's happening in uh, Western Tibet, what's happening in Nepal, what's happening in Central Tibet, what's happening in Yunnan, what's happening here, what's happening in Arunachal Pradesh. And so the place that I was going to tell you about is on the other side uh, of the mountains from you, and it's the upper reaches of the Yalong Sampo River. And, what, and last year, I went for a trip along this river and uh, started uh, looking at what, how it's been changed. And I was going to just write a nice biography of this river, but what I ended up having to write about was a lot about concrete. Yeah, and that's something that I've noticed with the Portista as well. The Portista is slowly being transformed into concrete. And by that, I don't mean, just mean building dams on the Tista, but also digging the Tista up to create the aggregate that goes into the concrete that makes the dams and the roads as well. Right? So rivers aren't just water systems, they're also the gravel and the biology that goes along in the river. So what we're having in this case in the upper reaches of the Yalong Sample is a slow transformation from east to west um, as it is slowly being transformed into a concrete canal that directs water as opposed to a living ri uh, river. I guess it's a bit like getting bad plastic surgery, you know, like you get a little bit of it and then they go, oh yeah, I've got away with that. But then people get to like 70 and they're still getting their cheekbones done and it's just like, it's really not good. Anyway, it's a, it's a bit like it has to, once you start, you have to keep going and, and the way that it's been done is, is, is um, <clears throat> a lot of plastic surgery. So, so this is some of the plastic surgery that um, we saw in the Ellen Sunkpool. So it, we have, for example, um, the... Oh my, this, I just came out with plastic surgery here, but it actually works in all these different ways. I'm, I'm into it now. All right, so um, there's this idea of digging up the river itself. This is a sand pit in, sand mine in the actual Yalong Sampal River, the upper reaches of the uh, Brahmaputra, which that sand is dug up and then used for the roads that you can see in the photo above it. And this is a railway line, that's a high-speed railway line that's being built along the river itself. And the other thing that's interesting about this transformation that I find fascinating is how much it is about show, is how much you look, it is how much it's about putting an image out there that people can take photos of or more likely take selfies of themselves in front of it. Um, so the other thing that I found in this transformation, so is this photo down here on the right, um, is taken of a sacred lake in Tibet that's called Traksun So, and it was also designated as a five-star so officially the title is five star scenic spot, but in my head all the scenic spots are actually selfie spots because that's what people do. They go there to take a selfie, right? And, there's a, and so everyone's lined up along these yachts. That's the yacht terminal on the Sacred Lake. Um, and they go for a burn. Do you guys say that in Sikkim ministry? We go, do a burnout. It's like, Nyeh. I suppose you don't have enough space to do it. Anyway, um, <laughs> to do a, a burnout in a field and come back and, and then get their photo taken on the pretty lake. Right? And it's this real transformation of instead of engaging with this place as an organic living being that you can come and check up on, instead you're coming to look at it, have your photo taken as easily as possible and then leave. Right? This is, it's a, the, the selfie spots are all over the region. <clears throat> and the other thing that's really kind of pernicious about this, which actually happens on this side of the border as well as the China side of the border, so you have that in common, is this 
greenwashing, sorry, greenwashing of the process. So there's a pretending that transforming these environments will somehow make it, uh, will somehow lead to cleaner energy and a cleaner way of life. Um, so this was one of my most disturbing moments was when I came across this massive dam in the middle of a river that's got a concrete factory in front of it. So um, who knows how much of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from concrete production? I think it's actually 10%. 10% of the world's um, uh, carbon uh, emissions are coming from construction industry and the majority of that is from concrete. Right? So this is a concrete factory being branded as green energy using sand in, as the fillet, sand from the river that it's damming in the fillers that it's making. And then it's got a big sign saying um, green environmental protection, energy conservation, low carbon. So I found that very ironic, <laughs> to say the least. So there's, this, uh, so there's this kind of, you don't end up with a organic, a, uh, um, a, a sense of a place as a river, uh, as an entity, as something that can have a, a, a biography if it's being broken up into all of these little concrete parts. And something, that's something that I feel like, well, I can see being lost in the processes of change that we're talking about, which are done for the, usually for um, our big cities in, uh, further away. And this is the final um, take home that I found of this. It's this amazing chart that shows, so China has, uses more concrete than everybody else. India's doing all right, don't, don't beat yourselves up, you're doing good. Um, but it's only 7% of global uh, production of, of concrete and China's over 50%. And this is the statistic that makes my head explode, that China has used more concrete in the past three years than the, America, the United States of America did in the past 100 years. Right, so you think of all the ideas people have of America and how developed it is and how, how much production has been going on there. They've done this in three years, what happened in America in a hundred years. So this is the speed of the transformation we're talking about. So um, through that transformation, through this massive change where rivers and mountains stop being our, our uh, things that we can understand as having biographies, things that we can understand, we can develop relationships with and become products from which we can extract things. Which it seems to me that we're doing this very fast without thinking about what's happening, three years to 100 years. The consequences of these things take about 100 years uh, to come back to us. So if we're doing everything in three years, it was 100, what's going to happen in the future? So I think that one of the main ideas I wanted to get across in this policy brief is just like, wait a minute, stop, have a look, what's happening to the environment before we proceed? Is this really helping? Right? Because everyone sells these ideas as development uh, is, is the cure-all. But what form of development and what form of construction are we going to do? What places do we want to live in? How do we want to invite with our, uh, interact with our environment and what's going to happen to our spatial friends? Thanks. Okay, hi everyone. Thank you so much for coming here this afternoon. And um, also thank you to everyone who's been involved with organizing this. It's a real privilege to be here and to be able to uh, talk to you and also hopefully uh, discuss with and, and learn from you. Um, I'd like to begin with a small survey. So in order to conduct the survey, I'd like everyone to start by raising your hands, please. Just raise one hand. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about the number of languages. Keep your hand up. 
I'm going to ask you about the number of languages that you speak. Okay? I don't mean the number of languages that you know perfectly. Just the number of languages you know. Okay? So please put your hand down if you only speak one language. Put your hand down if you only speak one language. Only one language. Okay. If you have two languages, put your hand down. Two languages.、Uh, three languages. I don't want to make anyone tired.、Uh, four languages. Five languages. My hand is down, by the way. Six languages. Okay, so. Most people in the audience have three languages at least, which they can work with. I would say. So the research that that I do, the topic that I'm interested in, is how the three languages that that you have are organised socially and politically, and what the consequences of that social and political organisation of your languages, what the implications are for you as a person, right? So it's about the it's really about the politics of language and the way that that impacts. People as individuals, and I'm going to be talking about that topic in relation to the to the Himalayas.、Um, my background that brought me to study this topic was that I lived and worked in China for eight years,、uh, working on the Northeast Tibetan Plateau.、Um, and when I was there, I became interested in the languages that the people that I worked with spoke and the situations that they faced socially and politically in relation to those languages. Um, that turned into a research project, where I was working in、uh, one village to find out why in that village were people shifting from one language to another. Essentially, the question is, why in a family do the parents speak one language and the children speak another language? Right. Now, to find out what was happening in that、uh, one family, I had to find out what was happening in that village. And to find out what was happening in that village, I had to look further afield at the broader region and find out what was happening there. And to understand what happens in the region, I was、uh, had to understand what was happening within the country, the policies, the politics of language. And then I finally figured out that to understand what was happening in the country, I had to understand what was happening everywhere in the world. So that brought me to try and understand something about what's happening here on the other side of the mountains that I worked、uh, on for almost a decade.、Um, and so I'm very interested, particularly in the transnational politics of Tibetan language. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But.、Um, First, I want to talk a little bit about my、uh, methodology, how I do this research, and the ways that I think about it. Because when I say that I'm interested in languages,、uh, people often want to ask me questions about grammar, about vocabulary, about pronunciation, and about other topics that I don't know anything about. So I think it's just important to be clear about what I'm talking about when I talk about languages. So. When I talk about languages, when I'm interested in languages, what I'm interested in is the way that language functions as a social and political identity. And so, essentially, what I'm interested in is identity politics. Now, I want to be clear about what identity politics is and is not, because I think that there are a lot of、uh, widespread misunderstandings about this term. 
So the way that we often talk about identity politics now is basically as a form of shopping, right? It's about the way that we choose who we are and the political struggle to defend the right to be who we want to be. So often when we talk about identity politics, we're talking about the struggle to, uh, to defend the right to choose who we are. And that's not what I mean when I talk about identity politics. So this term identity politics, um, it's been traced back to a statement that was released in the late 1970s by a group of black American feminists called the Combahee River Collective Statement. And in that, they coined this term identity politics, not to talk about the identities that they wanted to choose, but rather to talk about the identities that they were given in society and the way that that situated them politically. So all of the members of this group were feminists, but when they joined with other feminists, they found that the mainstream white feminists that they were speaking to didn't understand what it meant to be a black woman. And they were also involved with the struggle for civil liberties in America. But when they went into the civil liberties movement, they found that the men who led that movement didn't understand what it meant politically to be a woman. And so they realized that what they needed to do was to start a new political struggle, which looked at what it meant politically to be a black woman in America. And what they were talking about was the identity that they had been given in society and the way that that gave them certain rights and also positioned them, uh, gave them certain challenges and struggles. And so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about identity politics. It's the way that when you speak a certain language, when you speak in a particular way, when someone hears your accent, when they hear you use particular words, that they will locate you politically and socially in a particular way. And so when I'm interested in language, that's what I'm interested in. What do people hear when they hear you? What do, who do they think you are? How do they position you socially and politically? So the way that I study this issue is through what's called standpoint theory, right? Standpoint theory was originally developed by uh, Marxists to look at how do we understand economic systems of domination, and it's the idea that we have to look at them from the bottom of the system of oppression. We have to look at it from the position of the most oppressed, from the working class, the proletariat. Um, it was developed uh, by feminists who said that if we want to understand the patriarchy, we have to look at it from the position of women. And so when I'm developing these theories of language and identity politics, my argument is that to understand how language and power work together, we have to view that from the position of the people at the bottom of the power hierarchy, right? Because they are the ones with a view of the entire system. Standpoint theory also has an implication that you're not just viewing the world from that particular perspective, but you're also taking the standpoint of those people and arguing on their behalf and for their benefit. So it's a politically engaged mode of uh, thinking and studying the world. So when I talk about language politics, I'm not only aiming to understand how language and power are related, but to change those relationships in ways that are more uh, egalitarian and equal. So I've been thinking about these issues in terms of how power and language operate across the Himalayas. My perspective is really located from China and from particular groups in there. That's the standpoint that I've been taking in my research, but I've been trying to develop it 
to look at how these languages spill across borders and the relationships of power, uh, domination and privilege also spill across borders. So I think that when we look at the Himalayas stretching across all the nation states of this region, we can think of that as an entire system of power relations. We tend to think of language and power in relation to countries, and we think about majority languages and minority languages. But what I want to try and describe is a more complex system that is not simply about majorities and minorities and is not simply limited to a single country. It's part of the world system focused in a particular area. So the standpoint that I would look at this system from is the local level of smaller languages, languages which are spoken in a few villages, in a couple of valleys that are not used as languages of wider communication. They're not spoken as lingua francas. They're spoken within a particular community and only within that particular community. And they're not learned by outsiders. Um, at the second level of this hierarchy, we can look at regional languages. These uh, languages sometimes cross national borders, sometimes they don't. The regional language which I'm most interested in is the Tibetan language. Um, the Tibetan language has a profound prestige surrounding it throughout Tibet and the Himalayas. Um, it's widely spoken, widely taught, it's very well resourced, it has a script, it has libraries and an, an esteemed textual tradition to draw on as well. Um, it's what we could call a materially uh, and symbolically empowered language. Not all regional languages uh, have this kind of prestige and power though. So we might think, for example, of the Tsangla language, which is spoken in Eastern Bhutan. It's a large language with tens of thousands of speakers. It is the most widely spoken mother tongue in Bhutan. It's also widely spoken as a lingua franca amongst people who speak other languages. In addition, it's not only spoken within Bataan, but also in India and within China. So it's a transnational regional language, but it lacks the power and prestige that a language like Tibetan has. We also have national languages like Tsongkhai in Bhutan uh, and um, previously Nepali in Nepal. Nepali also functions as a regional language, right, which spills out from national boundaries outside of Nepal and so on. We then have what I call superdominant languages. Now, these are not necessarily national languages, but in one case they are. Thinking about superdominant languages, I'm thinking of Hindi in India and Putonghua or Mandarin inside China. Now, in China, Putonghua is an official compulsory national language which everyone must learn. Um, Hindi in India is in a very different situation, but I think what unites them really is a common ambition to a status which is higher than a national language, right? They have an ambition to a status which sees them as a national, as a some form of international or regional or greater than national language. And on top of all of that, strangely enough, the one language which unites the entire region is a language which absolutely does not belong uh, to the region, which is not of or from the region, which is English, of course. Um, but in China, for example, English is compulsory at all levels for all people from the beginning of primary school now. So whether you are a majority or a minority, English is a compulsory language to learn. Now, so when we think about 
the language politics and the broader politics of the region. I think we need to take into consideration the complexity of the hierarchy that we see here amongst these different languages. So if we want to understand the political relationships that are transforming the region, which are exacerbating climate change, um, like Alex has said, I think we really need to look very much beyond the nation state. If we want to understand what those relationships are and how they are working and how they enact dominance over the populations in the region, we need to look at it from the perspective of these languages at the bottom of the hierarchy, at these local languages, right? These languages and the people who speak them are what we might think of as the canary in the coal mine of regional transformations. So the argument that I would make is that if we want to think about how do we change these political and social relationships, how do we change these relationships to be more egalitarian, uh, the way that we need to do that is by giving more say in the political life of the region to the people who speak these languages. So just to give a very brief example of one of these populations and the kind of political predicament that they're faced with, I want to talk briefly about a language which I recently learned about on my trip to Bhutan. So in the highlands of central Bhutan, uh, there are three villages where a language called Oleka is, is spoken. In one of the villages where I spoke to people from, that, that language now has only four remaining speakers. The majority of the population has shifted over to Dzongka. The shift to Dzongka began in the middle of the 20th century uh, with increasing development, the building of roads, the building of schools. And through those processes, Olika speakers came to not only meet, but also in many senses to be dominated by Dzongka speakers for the first time. But it doesn't just stop there because English is the compulsory language of education throughout all of Bhutan. So if you're an Olika speaker, you may grow up speaking Olika in your, in your household, in the society around you, you have to speak Dzongka, and when you go to school, you have to speak English. And on top of that, the super dominant languages of the region, Hindi and Putonghua, also play a role. So English as a national language of education in the country was chosen in favor of Hindi, which was actually the language of education uh, in the early 1960s, as a way of exerting Bhutanese sovereignty, right? But now Hindi has become an important language for tourism, as has Mandarin Chinese. And so Hindi, uh, so uh, Bhutan, both politically and linguistically, is positioned between these super dominant regional powers. And so if you're speaking Olika, you're really underneath this hierarchy of international languages, super dominant languages, national languages, and your own mother tongue language, um, which at the moment is very much facing a losing battle and is likely to be no longer spoken by the end of the coming century. And this is one of the other harms of rising tensions in the region is that these localized populations are left out of and damaged by rising tensions, which place greater efforts emphasis on international and super-dominant languages. Thank you. So thank you, uh, all the three speakers, Dr. Alexander, Dr. Ruth, and Dr. Gerald, for bringing up uh, 
three different perspectives on one topic that is the main concern for the entire uh, international issues related to borderlands, issues related to environmentalism, issues related to uh, peoples, languages, and how it is affecting their identities at uh, uh, local, national, and uh, international levels. I would like to uh, reflect uh, on uh, two aspects uh, in relation to um, Alexander's and uh, Ruth's uh, issues concerning the international borders and the wider aspects of uh, environmentalism. They spoke on the Himalayas. Uh, their research uh, concentrated how these issues have been affecting the local people. My own uh, experience I would like to share with you is the coastal people of uh, South India. Mostly the marine fishing communities. How uh, the entire global environmental process has really altered the livelihoods, issues related to uh, deterritoriality, issues related to identity, even language issues, how it has changed dramatically. We looked into uh, aspects over a period of time. I, um, one thing from anthropological perspective I can say is that how one can take these local voices to the policy making. That is seriously missing when all the speakers have uh, highlighted uh, the, the damaging issues that uh, uh, taking erosion of all these uh, geo uh, politically and uh, the landscapes, the entire scheme of things that is taking place at uh, local, regional, which has wider ramifications at a global level. These communities who are resilient for many years, they are the silent witnesses that is taking place uh, which is they have no connection at all like uh, the fishing communities in Vishakhapatnam city they say they have no clue at all what is happening to their fish why the sea is coming onto their houses which is not before until until recently so they when we go there and we ask them that uh, uh, what do you what do you why you want to shift your livelihoods why you want to stop fishing and go as a daily wage laborer they say that they, they, there is there is no there is no catch, there is no thing. And uh, in terms of language, they're shifting to other mainstream uh, languages which uh, the, the city has. And there is a slow erosion of uh, languages which has been a corollary of their livelihood patterns, their, their, uh, which has been uh, eroded drastically. But we, uh, all the social scientists, uh, be it sociologists, anthropologists, political scientists, or even IR specialist. Uh, one thing uh, inherently I see in uh, all the three speakers is that uh, th there should be a, a serious engagement of uh, these people's concerns 
uh, at some level and uh, listen to them and see and what uh, Ruth has been also said that uh, what development do you need? We are not against the development, but uh, what kind of development that uh, is uh, well suited for a, a community which is uh, contextually located? So in that sense, I, I um, give more importance to that there should be a space and uh, a voice for these uh, communities which are at the receiving end uh, must be uh, given uh, some kind of uh, uh, um, a place to uh, see their concerns and uh, and and uh, Alexander also pointed out with the indigenous ways of looking at certain things. So they bring up these uh, knowledge, they bring about these systems acquired through generations and they have certain um, insights and perspectives to share how it can be uh, done at a uh, sustainable way uh, to tackle these global scale mitigations uh, across um, not only the Himalayan region but also the other plain regions like these uh, coastal people, agricultural communities, people who are in the other side of the mountain as Dr. Ruth always says that. So we always look for that serious engagement is needed to, to look into or to stop the degree of erosion that is taking place at this level. I was, uh, when I heard all the three speaker, Alex, Ruth and Gerald, a uh, few words were uh, playing in my head. Himalaya or Himalayas? Whose mountains? Geography, as I come from geography, so I essentially think in that perspective. So territory and territoriality, these were some of the words which were playing in my head. And then of course, uh, as most of us, we are driven or we are binded by our respective uh, subject matter. So this is the setting which left me thinking about, you know, from uh, this is probably a different lens from a tunnel vision to a telescopic lens with a micro vision. And that's what uh, the lateral uh, people they are trying to do. Uh, Himalaya is everybody's business. Himalaya is just not a local or a regional mountain. It's a global mountain and that's what it is all about. Whether we are a community uh, from the mountains or whether we are somebody who is uh, located downstream, whether we are somebody who is not even located in Asia, Himalaya is everybody's business and, and, and that's what uh, brings people and, and different disciplines together. And this is what uh, got me thinking about, you know, uh, this, this perspective or this initiative from the lateral uh, is about you know it's a, it's a telescopic lens of course but with a micro vision and of course uh, uh, as Alex talked about it's the interdisciplinary approach that they are bringing to the you know uh, concern of the Himalaya. We have seen all sorts of border in, in as uh, Himalaya is concerned and that's what our speakers were also talking about. Uh, we have seen the physical border, we have seen the psychological border, we have seen the border on, on the basis of uh, languages, border on the, on the basis of you know, the entire uh, uh, psychology of the community and the individual. So what we see here is uh, you know, the borderland also, uh, what we leave 
in, and when we take into account the Himalaya, are we taking into account the Himalaya per se? Are we taking into account the extended uh, region of the Himalaya? Depends whichever you know uh, uh, take that you have when you look on the mountains. Uh, but when it comes to uh, Himalaya, whether uh, some of us would be you know taking Himalaya as a living entity, some of us would perceive Himalaya to be you know uh, entity which is living as well as non-living, and it's a complete system. Whichever way we look into, at the moment, what we are living in a time and age which is a time and age of great paradox. We see Himalaya; it has transformed from uh, a mountain which belongs to the mount, uh, which belonged to the mountain dwellers, to somebody who travelled to the mountains, to the time and uh, uh, age when now Himalaya has started. Uh, being claimed by people who are planning for the Himalaya, planning uh, about the Himalaya. So, and and when it comes to the borderland dynamics, the great paradox is we have, you know, seen uh, the soft border has been transformed into the soft border, uh, uh, the hard border. At the same time, we are also talking about greater connectivity not to the mountain to this mountain but through this mountain at the same time without even trying to work on the various skepticism that we have in around us some of the skepticism we all move around with some of the skepticism we are part of it be it individual be it societal be it you know national skepticism and that is where you know uh, himalaya is a kind of a riddle think about well, when we think in terms of Himalaya as global Himalaya one can uh, have a different lens to look at it but whichever lens that we have to look at the Himalaya whether it is you know uh, we take the lens and, and look entirely at the economy or we look at the ecology or we take into account the migration earlier most of us we know by you know experiences or the stories that we have you know lived with Earlier, people used to out-migrate from the mountains. Now there is reverse migration to the Himalaya, and in the either case, it has both economic and ecological repercussions. Beyond that, if we you know further look into the another kind of uh, migration which Himalaya has been experiencing uh, lately, more so, and, uh, and and in you know few recent decades, and that is the forced migration. What I am you know trying to you know hint at is the refugees be it Tibetans, be it, you know, Lhotshampas or be it, you know, they, if we take the extended uh, Himalayan region, be it, you know, uh, some other communities from the other side of the mountain. So, uh, we have, you know, various dimensions to look at, we have various issues to look at and uh, as uh, we heard the last speaker about the languages, of course, uh, languages uh, as we see in, 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 in the Himalayas across from the local to regional to you know global scale as well we see that you know language is sometimes tied to the geography and sometimes languages is all about the space relation and that is all about the mountain has been uh, when we say you know uh, about the space relation and if I take a particular example from here itself most of us will know Lachen and Lachung and we will know that you know these villages 
uh, have uh, similar kind of languages. Some of us would know, some of us we would not know that the Lachin and Lachung speak two different kind of you know languages. I am not getting into the politics of the language and dialect. I would just stick to language. So Lachin and Lachung speak uh, two different kind of languages. Why this is so? Because there's a space relation. How people came from, who are the people, who are there, and when we see the western part of the Himalaya, there are people, there are villages, there are you know regions who can converse with the uh, people who are living in in Latin village, and without any kind of you know uh, uh, intricacies lost uh, through their languages. The point I am trying to make here that there are a lot of similarity across geography as well. So sometimes geography seems to be divided because of the various uh, borders that we think in terms of be it you know district border or state border or the you know national border or sometimes the border of the community and and uh, the people that we take into account. Sometimes what we see is you know. Uh, a lingua franca is thrown into by the accident of geographies or accident of politics and uh, how it happens in in himalaya and it has happened you know all across probably you know pema would be able to tell more about this but i'll just leave you with one example there's one particular pass in the western himalaya that we have all heard of is sipkila and sipkila there's another pass which is higher above sipkila and it's on the same ridge it's called lukmala but very few people would know those who speak the local language of that particular valley which have about three four villages so they would only know uh, there's another pass located higher up called uh, lukmala which is above sipkila now this information has been lost to most of us because the name has been changed and why the name has been changed because army have their own nomenclature so the lukmala has become durga post and so that's how they have named it Durga 123. What happens in this is there's a lot of history and a lot of geography gets lost. A language is about peopling, a language is about geography, a language is about history. So when the history and the geography gets lost, it affects your identity and the politics comes into it. I'll stop here. Thank you very much. afternoon uh, thank you for having me here um, when I was contacted I frankly had no idea what I was supposed to do <laughs> how do you discuss uh, discuss these things but this is fascinating because uh, we've been talking about all these issues for a while um, I mean living as we do the way we do we've been talking about all these issues for a while uh, it just helps that it has been so eloquently put here so that just helps our arguments in the future and um, uh, and I was looking at the policy solutions that have been uh, suggested here and it's um, I mean you mentioned the inclusion of indigenous and scientific voices into governance decisions which I mean is kind of accepted even the government of India kind of accepts that this has to be included 
And uh, w what is nice is that you also mentioned later that this has to be done much better. Because what we have, uh, what we have is this is really offensive tokenism that is happening in the name of what we call JFMCs, Joint Forestry Management Committees, which are like top-down. So it is again the forest department that is taking the decisions for the villages and telling the village management committees of what uh, things they should pass. The Forest Dwellers Act that we had recently, the problems with that. Uh, so in that sense, it's fascinating that these arguments can now be built up uh, much strongly. And I, I don't know where this ends up, really. <laughs> I don't know what happens with this at the end of the day. But um, there is another point here I mentioned, uh, uh, that you've mentioned here. But going over the topics that you've uh, gone through, I mean, if I could start with Alexander. You talk about the borders, um, the militarization of these borders. I think one of the, it is very important that people who are, we can, I mean, we're talking about the indigenous people, people who live there, but if you really go to the borders, the Himalayan borders, those people are, we are emptying those borders out of the people, uh, like those borders are being emptied out of people. Those people are either uh, leaving out of their own accord because it doesn't make sense anymore, that lifestyle for them, uh, or because of the sheer pressure of living among, I don't know, uh, in a place that is supposed to handle only 100 people, you have something like 50,000 soldiers stationed there. So that stress is pushing these people out. Now, it will be wonderful if these areas could be demilitarized. That's probably not going to happen very soon. Yep. So I think what is important is, um, I'm an army kid. My father was in the army, so I've traveled around. I've lived on the borders a bit. I've seen, at that time it was exciting, but I've, like, I kind of now realize how, um, uh, how terrible those things were. So I think it's very important that uh, when the army, uh, uh, when the army personnel are sent to any of these sensitive zones, and this need not be about the Himalayas alone; it could be any ecologically sensitive area, or anywhere that you send the army. I think they should be just sensitized before they go to that place. But talking about the Himalayas, I think it's important that they are sensitized to the ecological um, um, stress that these areas already are under, because I don't think they are bad people inherently. It's just that they're ignorant and no one bothers to tell them this. To give you an example of, I mean, so I'm, I'm a journalist, so I'll tell you some stories. Um, I grew up in the, um, in the army, like I mentioned, and in the officer's mess uh, was this huge bear skin. And uh, when we were kids, we would all kind of, we don't get to go there very often, but every time that we went there, we would try to count how many bullet holes it, ha it had. And it was as I grew up that I realized that the bear had actually been shot down with a machine gun by the army. Uh, then I remember being posted in Kashmir. Uh, my father was in Kashmir. And uh, we would hang out with the, with, with the Jawans, really, right? And uh, there's this lake. I don't really know which lake it is. You probably know which lake it is, which kind of drains out into a small stream. And these migratory birds would land there. And the army guys, because they've got guns and they've got nothing else to do, they're not really fighting a war all the time. They would, as the birds landed, they would just shoot a machine gun burst into that flock. And there would be one person at the, uh, at the mouth of the lake who would just be picking up the birds which would be cooked for dinner or whatever it was. Um, what I'm trying to get at here is that they would not have done any of that if someone had just told him, uh, told them the kind of impact uh, this kind of behavior has. Since we are in Sikkim, I'll tell you one more example. Uh, we were posted in Firozpur, 
which is on the border with Pakistan, uh, in Punjab, which is hot. Like, it is a very hot place, uh, summers. We were kids there, and then word spread that one uncle, that is what we call our, all army officers, right? Some uncle has moved in uh, to one of the houses nearby with a very fascinating pet. And no one had seen this pet because he would not bring it. It was not a dog that you could bring it out for walks. So we all kind of sneaked back uh, from the back into where the, uh, the animal was tied. It was a red panda. He was posted in Sikkim. And when he was returning, he just collected the red panda for himself and uh, took it home. Uh, Firozpur, he probably died within a month. I don't know what happened to it. So basically the point being that this is how they, this is what happens if you don't sensitize the army. Uh, and we cannot talk about environmental conservation in the Himalayas or the cultural footprint that the army leaves behind until they are sensitized. If you sensitize them and they still behave the way they do, there's still nothing we can do about it, right? But we would have tried at least. Uh, and what gives me hope is like, uh, there are some examples that uh, bear up. Talking about the place name changes that he was talking about, if you go to North Sikkim now, you'll come across a, a tourist spot uh, that they take you on joy, uh, drives to, which is called Gorilla, right? There cannot be a mountain pass in, so in Sikkim that is named after the great ape. There cannot be a gorilla in Sikkim. The, the pass was actually Korala. The pass was called Korala, and then because you've made the borders hard and the locals cannot visit those border passes anymore, and it's only the army guys who visit there, and Korala is very difficult on their tongues, after two tours of duty in that area, the name just changes to Gorilla and that sticks. Now, after a generation, the kids will not know that there was a pass called Korala there. It, even they will be referring to it as Gorilla. That is how they write it in the tourist signboards as well nowadays. So, is it a big loss? Maybe for many people it is not. But I think what you mentioned is right. Culturally, it's a big loss because the name means something. It kind of, it maybe charts a, a route they took or a pilgrimage they made, but then that's lost in within one generation of us just being lazy, not telling the army that you don't do these things. Uh, why, the, the hopeful thing that I was mentioning is uh, if you go to Thangu, uh, while you're driving up to Guru Langmar, as many of you must have done, they didn't have electricity for the longest time, and the army needed electricity. And one of the first experiments of renewable energy, renewable energy solar and wind, uh, was there. So, of course, they didn't have electricity to begin with. They were using diesel generators. But the moment they had access to this, the army did maintain those facilities, right? So, and it is not just the army. So I'll go on here uh, further. I think even bureaucrats, uh, IAS and IPS types, uh, when they are uh, posted to Sikkim, before they come to Sikkim, there should be a crash course, really, which, and any other area, actually. Um, they are required to learn the language, as we all know, right? Every IS officer, I mean, you know that living in Sikkim, all the funny Nepali that goes around. Uh, they, are, they are required to learn the language, right? Because that's how they administer uh, the, the natives. I think it's very important that they are also taught about um, uh, what the culture and the environment of a particular place is. If they know that, they'll probably be more sensitive about these things. Because someone was mentioning the other day that in Darjeeling, they're already digging tube wells which is probably something that a local administrator must have cleared, who would not have done it if he knew better. So, yeah, uh, the, the infectious, uh, the addiction to concrete that you mentioned, the plastic surgery gone bad and then you keep going on. We see that in Sikkim already, right? Uh, with this very, uh, um, 
I don't know, innocently named, uh, what is it, cascading, the cascade dam structure. Because we've already had, after we had the uh, Rongyongchu uh, landslide which dammed the lake, the argument to have more dams upstream became stronger. And the argument that was being uh, sold is that if you have more dams upstream, will stop the silt from coming down. By which way, the bigger projects that we have downstream will be able to generate more electricity. So that's, and of course, concrete is infectious. I mean, like that's how it has been. Going by the same count, the complete loss of indigenous construction styles is there for all of us to see. Gangtok, you can't see any anymore. Uh, but even if you go to Lachan and Lachum um, and move, stay in a hotel there, or even private homes nowadays, they're made of cement. The old style of brick and mud is gone. These places are climate insensitive. They use up more energy. It is just that we've not been able to make it fashionable. We've not just been able to make it fashionable for people to build, uh, to go back to the local, uh, to the indigenous construction styles, which I think, I'm, which I'm quite sure, they took them hundreds of years to come up with that idea, which be, they would be more comfortable for the guests as well. For tourism, if we can't avoid it, if we have to have tourists up there, if we can just somehow uh, make it um, preferable to live in, uh, homes that are just more climate sensitive, right? If you are up in Lachung and the electricity goes off, you'll freeze even in your room. I mean, in winters, definitely. And these places can't even take a fireplace anymore. I mean, the way they're constructed nowadays. So, um, and the obsession with concrete brings me back to what the army also did. You know about Guru Dongmar, you all know about the controversy there with the Gurudwara that has been constructed. Uh, I don't know, this is a kind of a, positive and a negative story both in itself. The Gurdwara was constructed there. Again, it's right up on the border. Even the forest guys do not really venture up to those areas much. This construction, we are led to believe, happened without anyone noticing that this was being done, uh, which is really not the case. The locals did see it. The Dokpas, the Yak herders would have seen it. But can they speak up against the army? They can't because they depend upon the army for their life livelihoods. So they would not speak up. The local uh, panchayats or the Zumsa that you might have there uh, would have had other reasons not to speak up in time. But eventually they did. An, a stink was raised and they did try to solve the, uh, uh, settle the situation. But at Guru Dangmao, it is not just the construction that is problematic, right? Or the appropriation of that space uh, by some other faith or by the army. I, do, I won't really call it a battle of the faith either. I think it's just the army trying to just do something because no one stops them, is uh, they also built a parking lot. So you have the Gurdwara there. In front of it, you also have a parking lot, which is this stretch of concrete. Makes for a very good parking lot. But what it also does is it blocks. If you know the story of Guru Dongmar, it has got this one spot that does, never freezes. Through winter, there is this one spot of the lake that does not freeze, and all the animals come there to drink water. There's a whole lot of legends and stories attached to it. But what this parking lot did is it blocked access, direct access to that one spot of the lake that did not freeze in winter. So all the Tibetan wild asses, yaks, whatever else that you have there, uh, they could still access it, I guess, but it was not uh, as easy for them anymore. So that is what they do. All it was, all that is required was for someone to have told these guys that you can't do it, they probably won't have. Now that they've done it, uh, given the country that we live in, it's impossible to break it down. It's a place of worship after all. But 
what I'm saying is also positive here is that when the story broke, unfortunately, this again comes back to me, it, the, the, the general posted in Sikkim at that time um, was in kind of a family friend, right? I, he was in my father's regiment and we grew up together. But when the story broke, uh, they, it became uh, very sensitive. Uh, it was taken cognizance of. The best they could do at that time was change the name. Uh, they did not call it a Gurdwara anymore. They call it a all-faith prayer hall or whatever. Uh, all the signs that they put up at Guru Dongmar, which called it Guru Nanak Jheel, uh, were taken down. So it became Guru Dongmar again. But what also happened in the long run is that that officer who, who had a very bright future, because of this one episode, did not get a promotion. He retired in the same rank that he did. So what I'm trying to say is that maybe the army is not also bad, right? It's just that we don't uh, brief them better. And uh, <laughs> I mean, languages is fascinating. Uh, the, the languages of the Himalayas are fascinating. You mentioned uh, people from Western Himalayas who can come to Lachin Lachung and can almost understand everything that is being said there. In Western Himalayas, of course, we have villages where every other village speaks a different dialect. Uh, and that is just how it is, they're not even close. But one of the more fascinating uh, examples of the language and how we've forgotten that we speak the same language is when the Nathula was being reopened. And this is something maybe uh, you could follow up. It, and you have access to Tibet, so it's wonderful. Um, uh, so when they were negotiating the opening of Nathula, so you had traders from the other side, that is uh, the Chumbi Valley area, traders coming up from that side, you had traders from this side, and from, uh, from Sikkim, you had interpreters. Uh, so you had, uh, you had someone from the information, uh, not information, intelligence bureau, IB, who could speak Mandarin and uh, Tibetan. So he was interpreting for the Sikkim delegation there, which included traders and uh, officials. And you, of course, had uh, the same group from the other side. And they were, they were discussing what can we bring, how long can we stay, things like that. Will you be really strict about laws? It was like any uh, negotiation that was happening. But the group from the Chumbi side, whenever they wanted to discuss something in secret, whenever, uh, secret, uh, whenever they wanted to discuss something in the same room but did not want the other side to know, they knew this guy knows Tibetan, they knew this guy knew, uh, knew Chinese, they would start speaking in Bhutia. <laughs> right? And, uh, and the group on this side could understand everything that was being said there, right? Because they were saying, speaking the same language. The point being that they had forgotten. Sikkim Bhutias draw their kind of um, arrival from the Chumbi Valley. They've just forgotten that we are essentially the same people at both ends. We speak the same language. I mean, these are things that would be fascinating to look into. The impact, the footprint of, uh, again, going back to the army, um, the kind of influence they have is, um, some years back, um, we have still have refugees trying to slip in from uh, the borders. Um, and uh, we kind of detain them. They have, they're detained there for a while. Their application for refugee status goes to Delhi, is refused, and then they're pushed back uh, to Tibet. But there was this family, this mother and two kids, who had been uh, detained, two kids in the picture. So they took longer. They took about, I think, five months to refuse their request for uh, refugee status. And they were kept at Thangu. They were staying in Thangu, which is essentially, I mean, I don't know, 30 years back, there would have been no one but some yak herders there. But now there's all this army and uh, their mess and their music playing. At the, by the end of the fifth month, the mother and her two kids could sing Hindi songs. Right? So, uh, yeah, the story does not end very well. But, I mean, we've seen that, right? People from Arunachal Pradesh probably speak better Hindi. If you go to Lachan Lachan people, they're more comfortable speaking Hindi 
than they are, uh, they're more fluent, let's say, in Hindi than they are in even Nepali, which is the lingua franca in Sikkim, is just because of the access they have. Um, Ladakh had this phenomenon, I remember, I mean, you're probably aware of this, but uh, what we got to, while we do whatever we do, hopefully, uh, to conserve the languages and see if, uh, I don't know, the loan words are better or the language is spoken more often, is also got to protect it from, uh, what do we call them, culture vultures, purists. Ladakh had this really bad exa experience. Uh, the students here might not know of it. Sonam Wongchuk, famous, Sonam Wongchuk, right? Three idiots, yeah? So, yeah, so uh, I was interviewing him once and he mentioned how, and he's involved in many things, right? The Ice Towers are just his latest, uh, he's been involved in the language, culture, all these things. So he said that they realized that uh, Bhoti, which is what they call the language there, Bhoti? Yeah. Uh, Ladakhi, let's call it Ladakhi. Yeah, Bhoti language was not being spoken and used enough by the young. And while they tried to promote uh, the idea of having some pop music happening, in Bhoti and things like that, so that the young use it. One of the ideas was that everyone still spoke it, right? Everyone could still speak the language and understand it. Nobody could read it anymore, right? Which is something that you'll hear a complaint often in Sikkim as well, that a lot of people speak Bhutia or Lepcha but cannot really read it. And which has nothing to do with just the alphabet, but also the very complicated way in which you're supposed to read it. So what these guys came up with is they came up with a publication, a newspaper, I think a weekly or something, in Bhoti language but written in English. So they did Roman Bhoti, if you can call it that. So the entire newspaper was written in, uh, used the English alphabets. They knew that everyone can speak this language. It became hugely popular. It became so popular that copies used to be smuggled to Kargil in Pakistan, <laughs> right? Because they speak the same language there as well. And they were dying to read something in their own language, apart from getting the news. Became a huge success until, of course, the monks stepped in and saying this is not right. You are defiling the language. If you want to take out a publication in Bhoti, you write it in the Tibetan script, which they knew went against the whole idea of why they were doing it. Uh, because nobody, I mean, of course, you, Sikkim Herald takes out a Bhutia newspaper. Do you think anyone reads it? Um, so if they did it in Roman English, though, I don't know, many more people would be reading it, perhaps. The pressure was so much, but the ma publication was very popular. It didn't work. Local monks you can ignore. They managed to convince the Dalai Lama to write a letter to the publisher saying you don't, I mean, be more careful, respect the language more. So in the end, what they decided is they shut the publication down. I'm talking about 10, 15 years back, maybe this happened. So what we also got to do is like, while we try to build, while whoever's coming in, inform them better, educate them better, and hope that they're more sensitive. We've got to also keep an eye out for, um, Okay, let's call them well-meaning uh, local, local dons um, who perhaps out of good intentions end up doing more harm to any effects as ma at making things more connected among the people than, uh, than it is at present. Thank you.